You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. to the Transition Wild Podcast, the home for those looking for expertise and inspiration on all things Western big game hunting. I'm your host, Adam Parr, and you're listening to episode number 14, where we talk with Dr. John Keener, hunting advocate, carnivore ecologist, and author on his perspective of the reintroduction of wolves to Western Colorado. Hello, everybody. Adam Parr here, coming at you live on the Sportsman's Nation podcast network. Well, it's not live to you, but I'm recording it live, so I guess that's that's kind of cool. <laughs> but, I, man, I really don't even have any words to say other than what the hell did I get myself into. <laughs> I have to say I'm not, I'm not a very political person. I'm not, not a very confrontational person as well. I'm just a very easygoing, go-with-the-flow everybody's buddy I try to be liked by everybody and you know just do what's right and I don't know I don't know where I'm going with that what's happened here is I recently recorded an episode with the Rocky Mountain Wolf Project with Mike Phillips and essentially what the Rocky Mountain Wolf Project is it's an advocacy group to support the reintroduction of the gray wolf to western Colorado so I had them on the show recently, and I talked with Mike about his perspective on wolf ecology and numbers and management and all that stuff. And when I posted that podcast, and for me, this was really something that was educational. I wanted to learn for myself and get their side of what they're proposing. And it, it was really just meant to kind of shed light on this whole topic. But what happened, I, post the, I posted the podcast, and by the way, you should go back and listen to that before you listen to this one. So if, if you're listening to this right now and you haven't listened to that podcast, go back one episode and, and listen to that. If you already have, when I posted that, I, I definitely stirred the pot, right? I mean, it's a very controversial topic. We as hunters, you know, love elk, love deer because we want their numbers as high as possible and we want to have an enjoyable hunt and and that's the way we see it and anyways i i had not like mean comments by any means but i had a lot of people reach out and and propose their you know opinion and that's fine and that's and that's great and um so so anyways when i recorded the last podcast episode i wanted to have someone on as a follow up to offer a different perspective and and here we are today so um, I think it's good as I mentioned to kind of see it from both sides from and hear opinions and not just get so one-sided on on certain topics like this because it's 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 such an important issue at least it is for me because I live here I hunt here my my job is is this podcast is all kind of based around hunting and and what i love so it's important to me it's important to a lot of people so we tend to get very vocal and 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 sometimes emotional about these things so 
here we are after that little rant <laughs> as a kind of a bonus episode to follow up on the Rocky Mountain Wolf Project. And today we have John Keener, very interesting guy. And, you know, he's he's went through the ringer on, on, on a number of you know, college uh, degrees. He's got his bachelor's. He's got his master's. He's got his PhD. He's a doctor, and in carnivore management and studies and and all this good stuff. So, one of the guys that on the pod that kind of commented on one of the posts when we posted the podcast, he's like, "You should get this guy on on the show. This is the man to talk to as a follow up." So, here we are. John is a very interesting dude, very well-spoken. I learned a lot. And and really just hear from somebody who has lived with these wolves, who have studied the wolves, who have studied states like Montana and Idaho and the impacts that the wolf population has had on their economy and the hunting and ranching and, and all these different things. So he, he gives a very, very well-rounded perspective that not only communicates to, to hunters, but to maybe the people that are kind of in the middle of the road and, um, you know, kind of just a general population as a whole. So this is a very interesting episode. I, I can't thank John enough for coming on. And it's, it's just really jam-packed informational hour. We run a little long, but it's, it's all good stuff. So, We'll get into that here in a second. If if you like what we're doing on the podcast, on the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, make sure you go over and subscribe. Leave us a five-star review. We'd love that. Please do that. Leave us a review. Leave us five stars. I'd be happy. You'd make me happy. You'd make my day. So go do that. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And make sure you're following us on Facebook, Sportsman's Nation, on Facebook, Instagram, Check me out on Transition Wild. Make sure you're following me there. And we'll look forward to connecting with you here in the near future. All right, that's enough. Let's dive into it and let's get John Keener on the line. All right, well, on the phone with us now, we have John Keener. How you doing today, man? I'm doing good. All right, you said you're out in Oregon currently what what's going on in the Pacific Northwest that has you out in that neck of the woods well my wife's finishing up vet school here at Oregon State so I'm here for about another six months I kind of live part-time in central Idaho and part-time here and I spent quite a bit of time in St. Kitts down in the Caribbean in the last couple of years as well so okay got it and are you originally I think you said in your email you're originally from Idaho I'm originally from Seattle Okay, got it. Yeah, I was born and raised in Seattle, and I moved to Idaho about 18 years ago, and have been there kind of ever since. Okay, very nice. Um, well, I mean, you obviously know the reason why you're here on the show today, but you know, yeah. to kind of preface this, I I recently launched a podcast with um, Mike Phillips of the Rocky Mountain Wolf Project, and um, you know, basically, as you know, they're an advocacy group for the reintroduction of the gray wolf to Western Colorado. And um, when that podcast was posted, I it definitely caused some controversy. <laughs> it stirred the pot, for it sure. Always <laughs> it always does, as uh, you know, wolves have a tendency to do. But um, 
you know, when some of these comments were rolling in on the podcast, I believe you were tagged in this post or one of those guys reached out to you and here we are. So I'm very interested in, you know, to hear what you have to say on this topic because um, we'll get into it here in a second on your background, but you know, you're, you went through all this schooling, you have many years of work as an independent um, biologist or studies in these related fields. And um, that's intriguing to me because you're not backed by a political group or, um, you know, any particular party. So I'm, I'm just kind of intrigued to kind of, you know, dive into all of this. But um, yeah, maybe if you want to give us a little background and your backstory and how you got involved in your studies and your work and schooling and just give us a rundown yeah. of your life, John. <laughs> <laughs> so kind of the, the way it started out, I was actually a car stereo installer for a long time. And at the same time, I was an avid hunter. I grew up hunting. Uh, Northeastern Washington was where I kind of learned how to hunt. Um, and at about, oh, when was it? 1999, I decided I wanted to go back to school and I decided to get into wildlife. I really loved wildlife. So I went to the University of Idaho and there I got my wildlife resources degree. And it, I, I really just loved the politics of it, the science of it. I mean, it, it was really intriguing to me. So I went over Washington State University is about eight miles from the University of Idaho. So I was really lucky in that I was able to make contact with Dr. Robert Wilgus at the Large Carnivore Conservation Lab at Washington State University. And I went over there to do my master's degree, and the project kept getting bigger and bigger, as, as anybody who's been in graduate school knows can happen. And I ended up doing my PhD there, studying mountain lions in, in northeastern Washington. And it was, uh, wow, one of the greatest experiences I ever, ever got involved with. Um, I ended up not going to work for agencies, um, as I found... It's a very political topic, as you saw from the responses that you got on your uh, your Facebook page from the from the original podcast. It's a very very political issue, no doubt. Yeah. So I stayed away from that. I went to St. Kitts. My wife went to vet school down there. And while I was down there, I was fortunate enough to get involved in a white-tailed deer project. They actually have a population of white-tailed deer on St. Kitts that is protected, even though they're technically an invasive species. They're introduced there to the island, and where I got is, to spend a year and a half researching that. Where is St. Kitts? So St. Kitts is about 1,200 miles north of Venezuela. Oh, really? And there's whitetails yeah. down there? Yep, there's wow. whitetails here on St. Kitts. And, and part of our goal was they're protected, and I got involved to try to see, you know, what – there's literally no wildlife management in those small countries down there almost at all. I mean, it, it's, they don't have the money for it. It's very difficult. So I was involved with, with Ross University School of Veterinary Medicine down there. And we kind of started to look at the conservation issues of the white-tailed deer. And uh, as my wife finished up vet school, we came back to Oregon State. And then so, so now I'm here. Got it. Got it. And uh, you currently hold a PhD, correct? Yeah. Yep, in carnivore ecology. Okay, got it, got it. Um, yeah, I mean that's, I mean it's tr intriguing. I mean you, you definitely, uh, as you as you said, you've done a number of these studies, been published in a number of journals, and um, just a lot of uh, knowledge that you know I'm sure you have all sides of the spectrum that we can kind of 
dive into and uh, and cover it from all sides, from hunters, from from ranchers, from activists, and uh, kind of go from there. Oh yeah, yeah. I certainly love talking about the the topic, and, and you know, like I said, I really respect uh, both sides of the issue a lot. I mean, it, it's. The one thing I've, I've learned from being involved in carnivore management is it's very, very political. It's a very, very contentious issue. And, and that comes from, wow, almost everybody. I mean, I'm sure by the time we're done here, I'll have pissed everybody off or at least uh, <laughs> I'll come close to it. No, no, all good stuff. So so we talked a little bit about uh, about this before we we started hit the record button, but let's mm-hmm. talk a little bit about the history of wolves and – um, you know, kind of where all this stems from and maybe wolf, maybe a little bit of wolf biology and, and, and kind of give us the okay. rundown over the last maybe hundred years and, and where we're at today. Well, we could, yeah, I can kind of look at that. I, I, I kind of want to give you, to, we want to try to put this in context of, of what wolf reintroduction really means. I mean, they were nearly eradicated probably in the 1920s. I mean, they were poisoned off. Um, so that, and when I say that, they were, that's in the lower 48. They were still doing very well in, in Canada. They were still doing very well in Alaska. But in the lower 48 in the Rocky Mountains, they were pretty much eradicated. And in 1995, uh, the federal government came up with an idea to actually reintroduce wolves into the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. And, and that was the, the big plan at the time. Um, What's interesting is that when this was all coming forth in 1995, a lot of groups were against it right out of the gate. Uh, I mean, especially the cattle ranchers, uh, the hunting groups were against it. A lot of people were really concerned. You know, no one had ever really done anything like this. And and they were worried about what the effects were going to be, the ecological effects, the management effects, the socio-political effects. And one of the big tenets to the reintroduction was this promise that was kind of made that there would be 30 breeding pairs and 300 wolves was the the target that was the goal between wyoming montana and idaho so you'll hear that a lot there 10 100 in each state 10 breeding pairs 100 animals and that's what people said that was what was going to happen and since that time, and we'll kind of get into the science of it here in, in a little bit, that isn't really what, what happened. Um, and why is that? Of, well, they grew really, really fast. The population literally exploded. Um, they, I've got the numbers in here. from When they were first introduced in 1995, I think there was 30 or 40. And then over with, within five or ten years, that population started to skyrocket. It broke 100, then it broke 200. And this is just based off of Idaho data. And currently, the the latest count that I saw the state of Idaho did was 786. So the population tends to grow a lot faster than than what was kind of, I don't want to say promised, but what people were led to believe. And, and part of that is, boy, a lot of this has to do with politics, and the science part of it, it, to truly understand where the science comes into play, you've almost kind of got to step back a little bit and put this into a, a much bigger context. 
the North American hunting model of conservation is kind of, it's one of the greatest success stories in history. Sustainable hunting is one of the, the biggest reasons for that. You've got local stakeholders, local communities that are part of the process. Hunters are invested and tied to conservation. However, in the last 10 years, that model has really, really come under attack. And I think you, you see this when you look at U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service numbers. They do surveys and they publish data. In 1991, there were 14.1 14 million hunters in America, and 7.3% of adults hunted. And this is in 1991. In 2016, that number dropped to 11.5 million, and only 4.4% of adults actually hunt. And a lot of this is coming to bear from two groups that kind of seem to be leading this charge and the, i call them there's there's two separate groups the academics and their funders are one group and then you've got these financial advocacy groups that come out that are another one such as and rocky mountain wolf project you put that in the rocky second group. Wolf project um i'll talk about some of the the smaller satellite groups maybe in more detail later but the big ones the humane society I certainly hope to talk. Uh, I just found out this weekend there was a, a big push to use the ballot box to stop uh, mountain lion hunting in Arizona. That was actually just recently it was announced that that's kind of been defeated. They've withdrawn their efforts to do that. So, so there's these kind of these two groups that seem to be really pushing. They're against carnivore hunting, and they seem to be really trying to push carnivore reintroductions. And, and I want to make sure that I'm really clear. I think carnivores are a great thing. I love them. I mean, I wouldn't have got my Ph.D. studying mountain lions if I didn't, you know, if I were one of those that say, hey, you know, the only good carnivore is a dead carnivore. We need to get rid of all the wolves and get that. And I don't – and I'll go into more in depth than that in a minute, but – I, I truly believe there should be wolves in the ecosystem. There should be mountain lions in the ecosystem. What I think is the big issue is how do we manage them and how many should there be? And that's where the the big bone of contention comes from. Yeah, that makes total sense. And I had a, I, I responded to a comment on one of the Facebook kind of posts. I can't remember which page it was on, but you know I, I, that was my exact response. I think the average person, myself included, probably a lot of hunters aren't under the notion of like wipe every single wolf off the face of the earth, but there's been a number of issues and a number of, you know, a couple of these other States like Wyoming, Montana, Idaho, where we have seen um, maybe court battles or outside influences, you know, having an effect on the management side that's based more maybe on emotion as yeah. opposed to science based ecology and you know the studies and what is the optimal care and capacity and all that stuff so that was kind of my take as well and it's interesting to hear you say the same thing yeah and, and it's, it's funny because it, it started out you know when the when the wolves were reintroduced in yellowstone they they started to move out of the area and of course one of the first things that started to happen was you saw hunters screaming bloody murder the elk were all gone they'd eaten all the elk and this was a total disaster. And then a lot of the academics and scientists got involved and said, well, we don't think that's necessarily true. So they started to 
to do some studies. And one of the first studies that came out of Yellowstone that was kind of uh, famous in a way was this idea that when the, when the wolves moved into Yellowstone, the elk used to graze in the valleys. And, and with the, the advent of the wolf or the reintroduction of the wolf, all of a sudden the elk had to move out of those valleys. And as a consequence, they, the elk quit browsing on the willow trees. And as a consequence of that, the willow trees started to grow up and mature, and then they created more shade for the streams, and then the streams got cooler temperatures, and then the fish started to do better. So this idea of this ecological trophic cascade started to really take hold, and it was supposed to be, you know, it was, it was proof. The academics and the advocacy groups were, were screaming at the top of the lungs, here's proof that wolf reintroduction works, and that it's needed, and then it's great. But on the other side, on the flip side of the coin, there was a, a smaller minority of voices from the hunting community that were saying, hey, wait a minute. All you've really shown is that in a, in a national park like Yellowstone, where there is no hunting, elk are, the, the distribution of elk isn't the same as it is outside the park. So what you've really kind of proven with this study is that elk need to be hunted. And if they're hunted and they're managed, then the we get to benefit ecologically from that. It also showed that a, lo a lot of the academics, the advocacy groups also learned that, well, what this meant was that wolves were changing the distribution of where elk are found. They were claiming, well, they're not killing them all. And, and I don't think they were killing them all. I'm not saying that at all. But what the, these groups started to do then was they started to tell the hunters, hey, the reason you're not seeing any elk anymore where you used to is because you're a fat, lazy slob. You won't get out of your truck and actually go hunt. You were used to just driving up down the logging road, finding the elk in your little hunting hole, and getting out and killing one. Well, now you don't get to do that anymore because the wolves have come in and moved it. And that was kind of the attitude. They kind of put a, a feather in their cap, so to speak, um, when that came out. The second thing that kind of happened was then hunters kind of decided, well, let's go up into the back. Let's go up and hunt where, you know, they say you can actually uh, get out in the woods and do a little bit of hunting. And they were still seeing that the numbers were somewhat down a little bit. And I'm basing this off of the area between uh, Ololo Pass, kind of the Idaho-Montana border. That area has, used to have just thousands of elk in it. And again, the hunters came in and said, look, there's, the numbers are down here in this area. And the scientists came in and said, well, you know, we can explain that too. There was a very large fire in 1910 that went through a lot of the West. And what it did is it had the effect of creating really prime elk habitat in that area. And coincident to this was the time that, that wolves were really on the decline. They were being poisoned. They were being killed off. So the elk herd exploded in North Idaho as a result of all the, you know, a perfect storm of good habitat conditions. And then, of course, scientists say, well, now those conditions no longer exist. It's not the wolf that's caused this huge decline in elk. It's that the habitat's not good anymore. So they kind of took that and threw another feather in their cap so to speak. By this point, there were, you know, two for two. And this idea of science-based management kind of started to spring up. 
in I want to say the early 2000s, and it's a it's a really interesting catchphrase: science-based management. Everyone wants to stick to you know, hey, we don't want to use just opinion or, or other forces. We want to look at nothing but the science. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's a little bit narrow-minded in the scheme of things. I mean, you do have human, uh, you have uh, hunters, you have diminishing uh, lands where prey animals are at or, you know, national forests or whatever. And then you have this whole spectrum of how do we pay for it all and the management side of it. So, yeah, I mean, just going from one side of the spectrum and just basing off science is is one part of it, but it's not the whole picture. Mm -hmm. No, and, and a lot of it had to do with, it. at the same time, the cattle producers were kind of out in the dark at the same time. And, and the science-based management came in. And what was, what's really interesting when you talk about livestock is that everyone seems to want to be concerned with, you know, how many cows do you lose to wolves? And that's what we need to care about. What, 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 how much mortality is there? How many of your animals are you losing in a year? And then the, the scientists will go out and they'll collect the data and they'll come back and they'll say, hey, look, the entire state of Montana only lost 44 cows last year. So mortality is not a real big issue. So what we're going to do is we're going to compensate you for your losses. And then, of course, they, they, they put the ranchers through, the burden of proof is on the rancher. They have to prove that their loss was based on a wolf. And the first problem with this line of thinking is that in Montana in 2016, they actually, and the numbers I think are on the Montana Fish and Parks website, they paid out just under $60,000 in uh, depredation claims, which to me is unbelievable. I mean, that's, that's all that science claims that the Montana cattle industry lost was $60,000. Where that becomes a bigger problem is that the effects that wolves have on uh, grazing, where the cattle graze, their nutritional and their health condition, their pregnancy rates, the birth weights of calves, a lot of studies have shown is significantly lower in areas where there are wolves. So my point being is that the wolves aren't just it's, – it's, it's not just a case of, well – we only need to be concerned with how many sheep or how many cows they kill. We need to be more concerned with the actual overall effects it's having on the profit of the cattle producers. And I was surprised to learn when I started doing some more research on this. Most cattle ranchers expect to make about $100 profit on a cow in a year. That's it. I was really surprised to hear that that, that number is actually that low. Yeah, that does <laughs> That does sound and, real low. And so you just uh, losing, you know, 10% body weight or, or the different things that they have to deal with starts to impact the bottom line pretty significantly. And not a lot of people think about that. A lot of times we're just stuck in this idea, hey, we only got to worry about how many cows and how many sheep they kill. And if they don't kill that many, then we're not going to worry about it. And I, and I think that's a horrible way to really, to really think about it. Yeah, yeah. This is kind of maybe off topic, uh, John, but it's a question I've kind of had for a long time, and I've seen seen stuff online and mm -hmm. read about it. But what's your opinion on wolves just killing for the sake of killing? 
I mean, do do yeah, wolves do wolves that. do that? I don't think so. Now, of course, you're going to hear, and I know this. Like I said, I'm going to piss off everybody by the time we're done here. <laughs> you'll hear you'll hear a lot of those stories. Oh, I've seen it. You know, the wolf came in, and there were 30 sheep dead, and there were 40 sheep dead, and and they killed for fun. In my mind, a lot of that kind of talk actually plays into the hand of these scientists and these animal rights people because now all of a sudden you're personifying these animals. They don't kill for fun. I don't believe, and, and my wife would argue as a veterinarian, but I don't believe that the emotions of an animal are that complex as people say. They're not killing for fun. They're killing because that's what they do. There are those rare occasions where, yeah, they do get in and they'll they'll kill a number of animals and – that they're, I think that they're triggered to do it, and because there's so many, and, and normally when a wolf a wolf pack runs something down, so a, a mountain lion is what we call a uh, ambush predator. They stalk up to something, they try to get really close, they spend a 10 second rush towards it, and they hope they kill it. Wolves, on the other hand, are cursing predators. They chase an animal down for miles if they have to until that animal gets so exhausted that it just falls down and the wolves start you know, tearing it apart. So when they run into sheep or cattle that are in a pen, they're used to running them great distances. Well, the cattle don't run anywhere. They've got nowhere to go. And the sheep in a pen have nowhere to go. So the wolves now can, they can just have their way with them. And, you know, there's a lot of those kinds of things that you hear from people about wolves that I, I, I tend to think they make us as hunters and as conservationists look stupid. And, and for lack of a better term, I'll give you an excellent example. Shoot, shovel, and shut up. That's my favorite one. Every time I see that term or see those three letters, I almost want to cringe because they make us, as hunter-vationists, I like to call us, look like we are just idiots. And I'll tell you why this becomes a problem. If you're a, I mean, besides the fact that shooting, shoveling, and shut up makes you a felon and you're going to lose your gun rights and you're, you're going to have to switch to bow hunting, I guess, if that's what you want to do. But yeah, yeah, explain explain that a little further. Shoot, shovel, and shut up. Is that just the act of like just killing them to get rid of them and burying them, essentially? Exactly. Shoot, shovel, and shut up is this idea that when, and it's, it's most prevalent on social media. You'll hear people get into an argument about the wolf, whether they should be there, whether they shouldn't. And then obviously, you know, someone just goes up and says, yeah, well, just SSS. In other words, shoot the wolf, bury it, and don't tell anybody. That's the best thing we should do. And it's kind of a – I mean, I understand the frustration. It comes, from, I think, from a frustration level with wolf reintroduction. But imagine for a second that what a lot of these academics and advocacy groups also try to do is they also try to show us that – Hunting wolves isn't necessary because they self-regulate. Their populations are, are you hear the term self-sustaining, which always makes me laugh. So if you go into an area, say in, in Idaho, and the game department is keeping track of how many wolves are, are killed and where the population goes, and at the end of the year, say that, that there were 10 wolves harvested and they count the wolves again, and the wolf populations remain stable. There's the same number there was the year before. So you can make a case that says, hey, look, by harvesting 10 of those animals, we're able to sustain the population. So hunting is a good thing of carnivores. But when a bunch of people go in and shoot, shovel, and shut up, and no one tells the game department that the, the wolves were killed, you could have a situation where, hey, we had 
you know, 20 wolves in this area, none were killed, and we still have 20 wolves. So they think that, well, we don't need to hunt now. Does that make sense? Because those animals were killed illegally and not reported. Yeah. So it, it creates a situation where, one, to the general public, you got to remember, 15% of the population is really pro-hunting. 15% of the population is very anti-hunting. You've got that 70% in the middle that don't care either way. That's the voting block that's going to decide the fate of hunting and hunting-based conservation as we move forward. It always has. There's no way we're going to change the mind of, of that 15% of anti-hunters. But what we do a very poor job of is when that 70% of people that are kind of in the middle of the road and, and they're, you know, the voters, they're the, the people that, that are going to make that decision for us because it's a very huge voting block. They look at hunters and think, wow, all they want to do is kill all the wolves. All they want to do is kill all the lions. Or you hear this idea that, hey, I, I killed a, a wolf today and saved 100 deer. That's another one that I always love hearing. It's like, no, you probably didn't save 100 deer. I'm guessing in the neighborhood of 20 to 25. But then you get this idea, we'll get more into the science here in a minute, about what compensatory mortality is and, and all those things. So there's a lot of, of criticism to go around. There's, there's both sides of this issue, I think, tend to, to – they're so polarized – that we as hunters have really got to, I think, fundamentally change how we deal with the wolf issue and hunting as a rule as we move forward. And what, and what is it in your mind? What is the answer to that? I mean, maybe you don't have an answer, but like, what do you, what do you think? How do, how do we as hunters communicate this, uh, very political, very touchy subject and how do we navigate those waters to kind of, not convince, but to speak in a manner I, to those 70%. Yeah, I think we really have to be mindful of what we say about carnivores. We have to get educated to the point. So it's like I said at the very beginning, I don't have a problem. And, and I think that, that having a few wolves in the ecosystem and having grizzly bears and having mountain lions is a good thing for the ecosystem. But it seems like when we're a group of hunters – whether it be on social media or at a conference or at some sort of seminar, it's kind of like the mob mentality steps up. That and, and I've experienced this myself. Like I said, I go to a lot of these meetings and I, I come out of them pissing everybody off. Is I, I tell them, you know, we can have a few wolves. We don't got to kill them all. We, we don't need to put out that image to the public. We have to really get back to our roots of being hunter-vationists and saying, hey, we want a certain number of elk, there needs to be a number of deer, we need to protect endangered species, you know, like the, the wild sheep, mountain caribou that are going out, and we need to protect wolves to a point. But, but where this issue and where I draw the line is, is that a lot of this comes back to 1995 when these pro-wolf people were promising us 10 breeding pairs and 100 wolves per state. That's all we want, they said. And when that number overshot that, extremely overshot it, and the state of Idaho, and I'm only speaking from the state of Idaho because that's what I'm most familiar with, but, but the situation was similar in Wyoming and Montana. 
what Idaho said was, hey, we want to be able to hunt these. Well, then all of a sudden the, the environmental groups got involved and started suing and saying, hey, we're, we're really nervous. There needs to be more than just 10, 100. How about 15, 150? In fact, there should be 3,300 in each state. And we're really concerned that if Idaho gets their way, they're going to kill all the wolves again. And one of the things that I really took issue with, and like I said, I have a, I have a massive amount of res respect for Dr. Phillips. I mean, he's, he's a, a friend of my Ph.D. advisor, but I really had to laugh when I heard him talking about how easy it would be to introduce the wolves into Colorado that would take a few guys and a couple of trucks and a couple of weekends and they could release these wolves. And I'm sitting here to myself thinking, then why are we so concerned with extirpating the wolf again through hunting, it by mistake? I don't think we should, but let's suppose for a minute that worst case scenario happens. Well, we can just get a couple of guys together in some trucks bring some more in from Alberta and reintroduce them again. So I, I oftentimes find their arguments to be very, very disingenuous. And I really start to wonder why is it that they're so adamant about these reintroductions when the ecological evidence doesn't suggest that they're absolutely necessary. Ecology has gone through a very, very drastic change over the last 20 years to where for a long time ecologists were saying, hey, we need to pick a certain moment of time that was human free and that's going to be our goal because this is what the, the this ecosystem was like without humans and it's, it's going to be quote unquote unhealthy unless we get it back to that. And then that started to change to where ecologists are now realizing, hey, the, the North America and the world is in a constant state of change. And the best thing to do is to manage those states of change to get the outcomes that we want. And I think the wolf kind of falls into that, that frame, that context, and how we think about it. Yeah, totally. So, um, yeah, you kind of touched on, on some of Mike's statements there, and maybe this would be a good time to kind of transition over to the science-based and what he kind of talked about there. Does that sound good, or do we still got to... Okay, cool. Yeah, so uh, one thing that Mike kind of mentioned, he, he talked about, you know, this kind of target number of 250 wolves, and then he kind of went into detail of how many uh, how many pounds a day and then broke it down to how many elk and deer per year. I think it was like 2,500 elk and 7,500 deer, and that yeah. was a very uh, liberal estimate, he said, on his part. Talk to us a little bit about like a target, maybe talk to us about his numbers and how <laughs> that would play out and maybe compare and contrast what he said and what the impact would be. Yeah, I was kind of uh, uh, surprised by that number because I, and, and maybe the, the, uh, the academics and the advocacy groups learned a lesson from Idaho when they, when people got so upset about not sticking to the number that they promised. Um, I know that the 250 was a number that was thrown out and it, it, it was, like you said, 10 pounds. I think he said 10 pounds per day and it worked out to one elk per month, 12 per year, but let's almost double it to 20 elk per year per wolf. And it's funny that the first thing that really struck me was that they talk about cow elk. And there's been studies that show that it's actually bulls face a predation risk 6.3 times higher than cows. So it's not really the cow elk that, that I think as a hunter we're concerned. It's more bulls that. Why, um, why do you think that is? Just because they're worn down from the rut and the, the longer oh, period? It has to do, that, do with the habitat that they, they use. 
Uh, they tend not to move out of the areas quickly. Cows are a lot more mobile. Bulls kind of, they're kind of run by the rut, I think is a lot of that. Yeah, got it. Um, you you saw between 1999 and 2005, I think it was it was either in Colorado or Montana, I'm not sure. I, I want to say it was Montana. One of the areas they counted elk. This, mind you, this is 1999 to 2005. So the wolves have been in there about four years, and then this count went, you know, six years later. The elk dropped from 14,500 to 8,300. And again, we kind of run into the same problem that we run into with cattle production, is that not necessarily just how many elk the wolves kill. It's also that pregnancy rates tend to decrease because the animals are stressed from having wolves in there. Fat reserves tend to get a little bit lower. So this effect that, well, that if we have 250 wolves, that they're, they're going to end up, you know, only eating, I think it was 10,000 out of the 80,000 that are hunted, or that uh, are killed by hunters. It just doesn't seem reasonable now if, if you look at what happened in idaho and wyoming and montana i would argue that it's not unlikely and it's not unreasonable that that 250 would probably go up to closer to 1500 to 2000 because if the habitat's as good as dr phillips claimed it was then i i don't think a wolf number of 1500 to 2000 would really be that unreasonable to expect i mean the the if you look at a number like that now all of a sudden you're looking at thirty-three thousand elk that would be killed and consumed in a year that's almost a third of what the hunters harvest now i again i think there's probably room for some wolves in colorado i think they're naturally going to make their way in there i don't think it needs to be helped along at all but this idea that they're they're only going to kill 2,500 elk and 7,500 deer, that's just not. I I don't I don't see that. I mean, I, I, that's not what Idaho saw. That's not what Wyoming has seen, and that's not what Montana has seen. And you're thinking Colorado is just going to be quite you know quite a bit bigger just because of our larger elk populations, our, our, you know, booming deer populations and the amount of public lands and landscapes that we have. Is that kind of your thinking behind that? Yeah. Yep. And, and I also want to kind of touch base on it. You know, one of the justifications wolf reintroductions always, they always like to use is that, it, Oh, it's federal land. And since it's federal land, it's my land and it's your land and the people in Florida own it and, and et cetera, et cetera. And the problem with that argument is that the wildlife's owned by the state. That, that's how the law views it. Wildlife that's found in a state is owned by the state. And the second problem with it is that in, I think it was 2016, 49% of wolves that were harvested were harvested on federal land. 51% were not. So this idea that because this, uh, you know, these forests in Colorado are federal land, that all of a sudden that gives everybody the right to say, hey, we need to have wolves there because it's my land. That's not necessarily true. Yeah, that makes sense. I can totally see that. Um, yeah, and you kind of touched on like wolves kind of making their way in gradually and, and mm -hmm. over time, you know, there's probably going to be a population here. 
And and Mike kind of said the same thing, but he he also touched on the point of hey, it would actually be good for Colorado to make this introduction. That way, there would be a management strategy in place, and there are also laws, you know, saying that there needs to be wolves there. Can you kind of maybe touch on that point a little bit? Yeah, that one's a really it's a tough one. So the Endangered Species Act of 1973 mandate all of these different, and there's so many different species right now that are, are potential to be listed or that would have issues. There's just no money for it. I mean, that that's what stops most of it. Um, the feds say you were supposed to have all these wildlife reintroductions and restorations and, and historical range needs to be recolonized. But the fact of the matter is, is that without the funding, it's not going to happen. So it kind of puts the the government in a big dilemma because I agree with him. He's absolutely right. The way the law was written and the way the law seems to have been interpreted pretty consistently is that we're failing. We're failing the Endangered Species Act in a big way. Case in point, and this is, is even more of a, uh, a legal question, is the eastern cougar. So cougars were pretty well distributed all throughout the Northeast. But most recently, they they declared them, the federal government declared them extirpated. And because they were extirpated, they're no longer covered under the Endangered Species Act. So we don't have to worry about reintroducing the eastern cougar any longer. So I don't know. That, that one is a, it's a tough question. It's a little bit out of my league because I don't follow the law as much of the, the legal issues that are surrounding it. I mean, I tend to agree with them. There is a legal mandate that it should occur. The only question is and where, where I take issue with it is, and I would hope, and, and one of my biggest messages to hunters out there, besides the fact that we really need to be mindful of our public appearance, is resist this reintroduction until they make, until, when I say they, I say until these advocates and these, these academics really make it clear as to what's going to happen when it overshoots the target of either 100 or 250 or 300 or whatever they agree it is. Because that, to me, is what really made this issue hugely contentious, was that they promised 10-100 in Idaho, it way overshot that, and then they didn't back up that promise. And that is what concerns me the most in Colorado, is because I, I we can debate the science and the politics and all of it, all slice it and dice it so many different ways. But the fact of the matter is, in Idaho, Montana, and Wyoming, is that hunting has decreased. And and I found it interesting when they talk about oh well elk objectives are being met in so many different places in Montana. Well, elk objectives for certain areas can get lowered because there's fewer hunters. That doesn't mean anything. That has nothing to do with how many elk are there. If there's nobody that's demanding to hunt them anymore, then the objective can be low. So Yeah, supply and demand, essentially. Exactly. And, and when, when you look at what we saw in Montana, Wyoming, and Idaho, to elk hunting, deer hunting, mule deer hunting, granted, I'm not going to sit here and say, hey, it was all the wolf. But the wolf contributed to it in a pretty significant way. And now they're trying to do this in Colorado to, to from my understanding, the, Colorado's got the most elk in the country. And I think it could be, if it's not done on a, on a much more conservative and cautious way, 
it can turn into a disaster for hunters in Colorado. And that turns into a disaster for conservation as we look at it in North America. North America is, the conservation model in North America is funded mostly through hunter dollars. Mm -hmm. And if hunting starts to decrease in all these Western states, I mean, there was a, a recent article or, or radio show that was done on NPR, I think is what somebody was talking about, to where people are really starting to raise red flags about how we're going to fund conservation in the future because with this loss of hunting dollars and the loss of hunting as a, as a, a hobby and as a sport, who's going to pick up the tab next? Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that, and that's, and that's one thing I've never really understood. You've got these activists or groups saying, you know, let's get these wolves in here or let's introduce this species to this area and we're going to come up with this management strategy, but I just feel like there's not a lot of there's a lot of talk and and, and then not a lot of walk as far as <laughs> yeah you know funding and, and how how this is all going to work and it's like all right we want this we're going to put it in place and then but the, who's paying for it? it it's really the hunters and in in the whole conservation and the funding that comes from tags and licenses and all that good stuff and and I feel like we have a big stake it stake in this whole situation yet you know we kind of get shoved to the to the wayside because we're a minority do you see that well, kind of dynamic very, yeah we're a very quiet minority you you look at they've been very these advocates and academics have been very very good at divide and conquer they separated the hunters from the cattle ranchers they they always you know will tell the, the cattle ranchers hey you don't want those stupid hunters coming across your land and then they'll tell the hunters, hey, you don't want a bunch of cattle in your favorite hunting spot. And then they separated out the timber industry and said, hey, we need to let the forest burn because that's better for you hunters for wildlife. They've been really, really good at dividing and conquering. And part of what I, I've, I've looked at, and I, I always get am hesitant to start to question people's motives, but when you look at these advocacy groups and these academics, it almost seems like, hey, the North American model of, of conservation wasn't broken, so why are we fixing it? Well, when you ask that question, you, you, the only real logical answer I get is, is, and I've seen this firsthand. I mean, like I said, I went to graduate school at Washington State University, and I was involved at University of Idaho, and I would sit and listen to these conversations that these academics would have at conferences, at game management meetings, and I was floored by the left-wing bias, and I, and I hate to drag politics into it, but politics really does matter. I mean, this is a left-right issue. The, what's happening in universities today is kind of starting to manifest itself in, in wildlife. If I'm a professor at an academic institution, and I want to get funding, and I want to get some notoriety and get my career launched, I have to come up with something innovative. So in other words, I got to start telling you that something's broken and I need to fix it. And what it seems to be today, what it's been in, in this small niche in the West is, hey, the ecosystem's broken and we can fix it by reintroducing wolves. And then they make careers out of it. And then same thing with the advocacy groups. They make a killing off of telling people how horrible it is that these animals are being killed and that you need to send money to stop the animals from being killed. 
It's a lot easier play. My point being is that as hunters and as ranchers and as timber people, we've all got better things to do, or at least we did, than try to 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 fight this fight. And I hope that when you know by listening to to your last podcast that talks about what these people want to do, I hope hunters stand up and really start to think about this stuff and start to get proactive. If there was one message I could get across to hunters today, I would tell you that there needs to be a unifying force or entity that really, really starts to guide hunting. And this is where I'm going to start pissing people off. The NRA, as much as they they are right-wing gun nuts, they're actually very, very strong advocates for hunting. Safari Club is the second one. Huge advocate for hunting. And then the third one is Sportsman's Alliance. Huge advocate for hunting. What concerns me is some of these smaller satellite groups. And like I said, this is where I'm going to piss people off. But I saw on your website, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, very left-wing. Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Program, very left-wing. Those two groups right there concern me a lot. And it's funny because, you know, you'll, you'll go on there and, and start pointing out a, a lot of those groups. If you point out some of the stuff, boy, you just get attacked. I mean, I'm sure I'll get lambasted for saying that about BHA and, and Thomas or Theodore Roosevelt. But I think it needs to be said. People need to really start looking at what these groups truly support. Are they pro-hunting or do they have some other agenda behind them? What um, in regards to BHA and the mm-hmm. TRCP? What what? So you're saying they're left wing, but what is that a is that a bad thing in regards to like are they pushing you know gray wolf population introduction no. or Inter- what? Interestingly, they won't take a position, and I don't want to speak for them. I mean, I'm sure they can speak for themselves. I will say that I looked at. BHA's Facebook page and saw a post where they won't take a position on the wolf. They claim they're not a wildlife group, that they're more about public lands, so they wouldn't take a position. My issue with BHA started when I, I kind of got involved with them a little bit, and all I saw, and maybe it just happened to be the time I got involved, was they were just Trump bashing and Ryan Zinke bashing nonstop. It seemed to be that's all they were about. And then when you questioned them on it, what seemed to happen was you get attacked, immediately start getting attacked. Got and it. then they kind of backed off and claimed, well, we're nonpartisan. And my issue, and, and I completely, you know, I'm a firm believer in freedom of speech, and they have an absolute right to do whatever they want to do. I would never, you know, argue that. What concerned me was it seemed to me, and this is only my opinion, but it seemed to me my experience was that they were trying to hide the fact that they were more left-wing slanted. And that gave me the impression that, I don't know if you remember when the tragedy at Sandy Hook Elementary occurred, there was a big movement right after that happened to where a lot of groups were starting to get formed that were like... uh, Hunters for Responsible Gun Laws. And what they were was they were these small political groups that were kind of feigning that they were one thing when they really were another. And again, I I have friends. One of the guys I graduated from University of Idaho with, 
Love him to death. He's a wildlife biologist. He's a huge BHA guy. I have complete respect for him. What I took issue with was, hey, say, hey, if you're going to be a left-wing group, tell your people you're a left-wing group. Don't tell them that you're nonpartisan when you're really not. That was the biggest issue that I had. Got it. Got and, it. And I, I think that, you know, there's – as far as hunting goes, I know they do a lot of work in public land, which is really great. But, but as far as a hunting advocacy group, that's why I really say Safari Club and Sportsman's Alliance – can I think can do a lot more for us than some of these smaller satellite groups. Got it. Got it. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about kind of Montana and Idaho and Wyoming and kind of their state of this wolf population and maybe how taxpayer dollars are playing a role in the current management strategy there. Um, can you touch on that a little bit as far as like, how everything's playing out currently with them? Are are the wolf is the wolf on the rise? Are they declining? Are... So the, what's happened is, and and from what I can tell by the data that I looked at from the states is there's a couple of interesting things. Um, the populations seem to rise in all states to I want to say around 750, 800, and then they started to dip a little bit and then go back up the next year, and then dip a little bit. So this is only about a three-year pattern. So if you, if you look at a graph of the population, it continued to trend upwards, and then it kind of leveled off and started cycling. They call that a stable limit cycle. It's pretty common with carnivores. What they do is that as, the, as they approach the point to where they're killing so much prey that it starts to have an effect on their birth rate, then their population goes down. So you can imagine that what happens is is that it's the classic, uh, what was it, the fox and the hare scenario where the, the hares go up and then the foxes go up and then the hares go down and the fox. So you get this stable limit cycle. Um, they're very, very cash strapped from what I understand from a management perspective and how to deal with this. I know they make... I think Montana said 350 to 400,000 in tag sales, which isn't nearly enough to manage wolves. They can they can barely fund their own monitoring program. So as a consequence of this, what's interesting is Montana recently came into some criticism because, and I think Idaho is doing the same thing, is that when they were first delisted, Montana and Idaho and Wyoming had to provide reports on how many wolves there were in the state. And what they did was they said, well, we are only concerned with the minimum number of wolves because the, if we go below a certain threshold, we're going to get the wolf relisted again. So we want to avoid that. So they started doing this thing called minimum counts. So they would verify, hey, we know we have at least 750 wolves. And after that five-year window closed, they no longer have to fully report what they count. Montana, for example, has said, hey, we're no longer even going to be counting or we're not going to put out a population estimate of how many wolves there are. We're not required to. What we will tell you is that we know there's a minimum of this many. And that started to cause a little bit of controversy because environmental groups are saying, oh, well, they have no idea how many wolves there are. And that's just simply not true. It's a, these, these wolf counts and the way they're monitoring them is simply a function of budget-strapped agencies and 
they don't legally have to do it anymore. The only thing they're concerned with is making sure they don't fall below that minimum. Got it. Got it. Okay. So I, I don't know if you follow him or not, but I, I follow Corey Jacobson uh, quite uh, you know quite a bit on social media. And over the past month, it's probably, what, like two, three weeks ago, he was kind of documenting a wolf hunt and, and, uh, you know, basically what he, he was stating and was saying that they were very hard to hunt and very hard oh, yeah. to, to get on. And, and then he was finding all these dead bulls and you kind of touched on that earlier. Like bulls are a higher target of these wolves. Talk to us a little bit about like specifically how, how would we manage them through hunting and trapping? Yeah. And, and is that going to do, uh, really any sort of impact to these wolf that's populations? A- that's a great, great question, and it's a great point, because the fact of the matter is no. We've learned that hunting them, and, and this is what was fascinating, was that we fought for the right to hunt them because somehow that we thought if we could hunt them, we were going to be able to control their numbers, and that turns out to be absolutely untrue. We've managed to hold them in check. I mean, it has an effect on their population. I mean, I would never say that it doesn't. But as far as this idea that through hunting, now all of a sudden we're going to be able to really control this population like we do with deer and elk, you got to remember carnivore biology is a lot different than, than prey species biology. They're, they occur at much lower densities. Their distribution is far different. They're extremely difficult. I've hunted wolves, and I'll be honest with you, I, I haven't seen a single one yet. And I've put some time in. I have tried and tried and tried. There just aren't that many out there that are huntable. The guys that seem to be successful, at least in Idaho, are snowshoeing or snowmobiling way up into the backcountry to be able to do it. I mean, you've got to be a dedicated hunter if you want to go out and kill a wolf. So what they do is, of course, they just hand out wolf tags to every single hunter that's in the woods and hope that the ones that do run across them will harvest a few of them. And that works great in some habitat types, doesn't work so good in other habitat types. I know in the north central part of Idaho, in the Lolo area, they've tried aerial gunning, they've tried trapping, they've tried every, and when I say they, I'm talking Idaho Department of Fish and Game, to knock that wolf population back a little bit to see what effect it'll have on the elk herds in there, and they just simply can't do it. So I I get really, really hesitant when we talk about, oh, well, you know, the the compromise for Colorado is going to be, hey, we can reintroduce them and then we'll let you hunt them. Trapping is probably going to be much more of a management tool. I think the trapping success in Idaho has been fairly decent. I think they actually get more from trapping than they actually kill from, from hunting. But both of them, it's a it's a very very tough endeavor. That's for sure. Yeah, I can I can see that. I just remember looking at that, and he just literally hunted the entire week, and and never you know, finally got one. And and I really just can't understand it because I I I've just never dealt with them. So I mean, it's it's something that's completely new to me, and I really have no idea how they interact and how they use these landscapes. And, and I was just curious on how that would all play out if, if hunting were part of that. They're incredibly intelligent. I mean, the the way that I've been told from, from, and like I said, my special, I, I studied mountain lions more than wolves, 
But the wolf guys I know will tell you they're 10 times smarter than a coyote. And a coyote is one of the smartest critters on the face of the earth. But these, there was a, a gentleman, and I, I won't drop any names, but he was trapping wolves in Idaho. And he had footprints around three different snares, probably within inches of the snare, 10, 12 different paw prints to where the wolf actually knew not to step in that snare. And it was amazing at how smart they get. Trying to trap them is a very, very difficult task. There's very few people out there who can do it very well. And you see this a lot of, you know, the game agencies, Montana and Idaho, both, I think, are running trapping classes. And they're trying to get people into the, the sport and trying to get more of them into it. But then you run a trapping is, a, is an ethical minefield for a lot of people. It's it's one thing to say, hey, I'm going to take my you know ot six out and I'm going to shoot a wolf and I'm going to kill it cleanly and humanely. It's a tougher sell with that 70% of the public to say, hey, I'm going to snare him and I'm just going to make sure I get there within 72 hours to finish him off. Mm, yeah. So it, it's a it's a tough one. If if you had to ask me, I mean, I was involved in. Um, and part, one of the projects I'm doing right now in St. Kitts is involved with the vervet monkey. They're trying to – there's a big problem with vervet monkeys on the island of St. Kitts. They destroy the farming, so they import a lot of food there. My impression and my first inclination of it was you just need to eradicate them. You need to kill them all. There, there's no way to sugarcoat this. There's no way to make it easy. They're an invasive species. Setting aside all this, the animal rights arguments, et cetera, et cetera. My opinion, if you want to deal with this problem, is to poison them. But that, again, that 70%, and this is not in the United States, so the public opinion issue is not quite as big. Here in the United States, I think when you, when you get to a point with wolves that is as high as they're at, the only way that we can effectively start to manage them in a way that, that's acceptable to all parties involved from a numbers standpoint is to poison them. But that's never going to happen. The politics behind that and the ethics behind that will never happen. And because I believe firmly it will never happen, that is another reason why I, I, I am so adamant and say, hey, we need to be really cautious about just reintroducing wolves because we think they're going to benefit the ecosystem in some way. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it totally makes sense. I mean, that's why you touched on and. You think it could be a disaster, and it's a very situ uh, very scary situation that we could find ourselves in, is that there really is no good way to really manage these apex predators. And then you have these lobbyist groups that come in, and there's a lot of political um, involvement. And then you have lack of funding, um, and how are we paying for all this management? It, it, I can totally see it. It's a very slippery slope. And once you're in, you're kind of in. and. Exactly. There's no getting out of it. Yeah, yeah, you're kind of in for the long term at that point. Makes yeah. so. Um, so Mike uh, touched on Colorado already kind of having a plan in place and for a wolf management strategy. Do you have any thoughts on that? Is there a plan in place? What does that look like if there is? I yeah, I'm not familiar at all with Colorado. I haven't followed up on what they're moving. A lot of state game agencies will have contingency plans because 
I would disagree with him in the fact that, well, the only way that they can get a, a management plan is if there's a reintroduction, and, and that's not necessarily true. Let me give you an example. State of Washington, which is where I was involved in in northeastern Washington, and I talked a little bit about my Ph.D. advisor, Dr. Wilgus, who was very pro-wolf. He's involved in Washington's wolf recovery efforts, and there was no reintroduction in Washington. The wolves naturally came in from Idaho and Montana and, through, and, and from Canada. So, and Washington had, Washington has created a wolf management strategy, and there was no reintroduction there. It was simply a response to the fact that wolves are starting to recolonize Washington. So if the wolves start to recolonize Colorado in significant enough numbers, then Colorado has every right to come up with a management plan. They don't need to have a reintroduction to do that. Got it. Okay. Makes sense. Um, well, cool. Well, Hey, John, uh, we've, we've kind of been on a, a number of topics here. Is there, is there anything that we haven't covered? Is, is there some place that we can go to kind of further look into these, this, these wolf intro introductions and how all this is going to play out? Where, where can we go? Talk to us and let's kind of wrap this up and give us well, kind of your final thoughts. Yeah. That's kind of the, and, and I alluded to that. That's kind of a problem because I don't think that there is. I, I think you can get some good information from Safari Club. Um, you can get some good information from Sportsman's Alliance. Um, I, I really think that hunters need to sit down. There needs to be a summit, and they need to sit down and kind of hammer out the differences between the small fractured groups, the bow hunters, the rifle hunters, the hound hunters, all these different groups need to come up with a cohesive strategy to, to end this divide and conquer that the academics and the advocacy groups are using. Um, that is really where I, I would I'd send people. I tell them to be very cautious of a lot of the science that, that comes out. Science is a good thing. I mean, do, don't get me wrong. And I agree with Dr. Phillips that it, it's, it's the best thing that we have. But we got to question it a little more. We've got to do it in a more cohesive way and not necessarily so much from an emotional way. I think hunters and hunting groups, you know, I agree. Again, call your legislators. Tell them that you don't want wolves reintroduced without more information. That you don't want, I don't even know how this, you know, would work. But some sort of guarantee, some sort of effort put in place that makes it very clear, hey, if we overshoot the target, this is how we're going to address it, and this is who is going to pay for it. Because that, to me, was, was the biggest thing that, that really had a negative effect in, the, in Montana and Idaho and Wyoming. I tell hunters to be, be really mindful of our public perception. You know, keep that 70% in mind as much as we possibly can. And I'm not saying that, that we need to kowtow and give up our values, but we need to learn when to fight the battles that we need to learn to fight. Throwing up a dead cougar on the hood of our car and taking pictures of it, you know, as we roll through downtown Seattle is probably not the best choice. <laughs> I mean, do we have a right to do it? Of course we do. I think a lot of times our judgment gets a little bit, you know, compromised when it comes to that, that issue, but, and, and really reach out to livestock producers and timber people. I mean, the, the, the three of us, those groups were, were really strong 
when they stayed together. But it seems in the last 20, 25 years, anti-hunting groups have made a very, very good, strong effort at dividing us up. And I think if we get back together and focus more and we're not so anti-carnivore all the time and we're mindful of that 70%, I, I think that good things are going to happen for conservation. And just as a, as a final note, like I alluded to a little bit, there was a, a effort by the Humane Society in Arizona over the last five, six months to put a ballot initiative in place that would have ended cougar hunting in Arizona. And it would have literally stripped the Arizona fish and game from their ability to manage cougars by using hunting. And that effort, surprisingly, was very quickly and soundly defeated by using social media, using science, using logic, being mindful of that 70%. And it, it was amazing to see how... You still there, John? Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I kind of bleeped out a little bit there. But um, yeah, no, all good stuff. Before uh, Before we jump off here... I know you're you're working on uh, a book and and doing some studies currently. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Maybe where we can go to find a little bit more information on yourself and some of your work. Yeah, so I'm writing a book right now called Mountain Lions, Money, and Mismanagement. Um, it's about the war on sustainable uh, harvest and science-based management. Uh, I'm currently working on it. It'll be available on Amazon probably sometime this summer. And then I'm also working on a book, which is a lot more, you know, the politics will start to drain you, you know what I mean? But this one's a lot more fun. It's called Use It All. And it's a book that I put together that is talking about ways that we can influence that 70% by little projects when we harvest an animal that a lot of people probably don't think of. For example, I made 24 bars of soap out of uh, the fat from a buck that I killed this year. And actually handed them out as gifts at Christmas. And it was a really good way to introduce non-hunters. They were just floored. Like, wow, you can make soap. Um, all different ways. Using the small intestines of a deer as sausage casings. There's so many different ways that we can use these animals if we choose to. That kind of put out the positive benefits of hunting. And I think make us better hunters and make us better conservationists all the way around. And that should be available on Amazon this summer also. And and uh, I'll put a I'll put a link to that when uh, is there a website that they can go to right now or is that something nope. we got to wait okay. to? That's something I'm waiting until this summer. And, okay. And, and yeah. Got it. Got it. Very good. Well, hey John, this has been very enlightening. I've I've learned a lot. I I like to hear both sides of the spectrum from you know from all sides, and this is just another side that that we've heard and and again appreciate your time and thanks again for coming on the show well thank you for having me and there we go another episode in the books thanks again to john for coming on the show all i have to say is wow and i'm i'm always amazed at the conversations i get into with people and the people that i'm able to meet through this podcast and the topics we're able to cover because this exact issue that we're covering right now is is something that is not going to go away. Whether or not wolves are reintroduced or end up here naturally, they will be here at some point. We just don't know the timeline behind it. 
But I, I just think it's good that we kind of get the conversation going. And, and beyond that, we hear all sides and all perspectives. So this was just another breath of fresh air around this whole subject and around this whole topic. We as hunters, it means a lot to us. It, it's a very important issue that's at stake. So we need to start conversing. And, and I think John was able to kind of offer not only a perspective, but a way to communicate not only between our own community, but how we should go forward with communicating to that 70% that, that he, you know, touches on in the podcast episode. I learned a lot. I took away a lot from this episode that I didn't think I would. I just, John's unbiased opinion and experience and real world knowledge on these species is fascinating. And again, it's just another side to view this whole issue from. So I hope you like that. And that's just a good approach to kind of go forward with anything in life. Like, Let's study all sides before before jumping to conclusions. I know it's easy to do because, you know, we all have our beliefs and, and our opinions and we all walk in different shoes. But I, I think this is good not only for the hunting community, but just some, some good takeaways for, for life in general. So make sure you check out John's work. As mentioned, we will post some articles and um, some links that we can – that you guys can go to to check out further information. Thanks again to John for coming on the show. If you guys, again, like what you're hearing, make sure to subscribe. As mentioned in previous episodes, there are now two RSS feeds to the Sportsman's Nation podcast network. We have the Whitetail RSS feed and the Big Game, Western Hunting Big Game. Um, <laughs> it's late. I can't talk. The the big game Western hunting feed, and that's where you'll find Transition Wild on. So make sure you subscribe there and leave us a five-star review. Be much, much appreciated. Follow Sportsman's Nation on Facebook. Follow them on Instagram. Also follow Trans- Transition Wild on Facebook and Instagram. And if you're like me and trying to sort out your 2018 hunting plans... Go over to transitionwild.com, and if you subscribe, I've put together this basically 9- or 10-page guide on, it's called Five Western DIY Hunts for Under $1,000 for You and a Friend. So I've outlined five Western big game hunts that you can do if you go with a friend and split some costs, and I will send that to you for free if you subscribe. So go to transitionwild.com, subscribe on one of the forms there, and that'll give you a kind of a good guide and structure and maybe some ideas on some hunts to go after this fall. All right, that is it. Hope you guys have a great weekend. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll talk to you soon.